This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes, as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Ed Alder, a director of three different companies, including Lloyd's Corporate Brokers. Lloyd's is a corporate brokerage firm who will recognise leaders in business sales, mergers and acquisitions. We're excited to announce that Alexander Spencer has recently partnered with Lloyd's to offer our clients an end-to-end solution for selling their businesses. Now, on to the episode. You'll learn how businesses are evaluated, what to do when getting a business ready for sale, and a step-by-step process on how businesses are sold. Ed provides lots of juicy tips in this episode, so let's jump in. Ed, it's a pleasure to have you on the bottom line today. Nice to be here, Savan. Now, before we dive into our topic today of all things selling businesses, can you please give us a bit of a background on you and your professional journey? Similar to yourself. Well, actually, we're born in the same month, almost like brother from another mother. (laughs) My journey started out like a lot of, I suppose, young guys, went to uni, studied business, ended up getting a graduate job in management consulting. My background was more sort of marketing management at university, but I ended up in the UK through basically wanting to explore the world and found myself a job at Ernst Young, started working there more in a business development phase. And then one of the partners said to me, hey, if you want to work with us, you've got to get your chartered accountancy. So I'm actually a Scottish chartered accountant of all things, the oldest accountancy body in the world. It was tough. Like I never thought I'd be a CA, but I said to someone the other day, if my kid said to me, you know, want any advice on business, I'd say it's a great start because you go to those firms whether it's big four, mid-tier, and you meet tons and tons of people like your staff here at Alexander Spencer, you get great on-hands training and also experience. And then I branched out, ended up being an advisor at M&A Partners where we did a couple of deals together, went in-house at iSelect as their head of M&A corporate development. And then in the last five years since I've left iSelect, I've gone out and bought some of my own businesses. I work with Lloyd's as their director of the Victorian director and I actually have bought businesses from Gary, which is how actually I came across Lloyd's. And my hats now sort of sit in various buckets. So I've got some direct investments, some investments, one of which you're a part of, pay.com.au, which I'm heavily involved on as an executive director. And also I work with Gary selling businesses in Victoria. Tell us a little bit more about Lloyd's. That's where you do a lot of your M&A selling type of work. So what's your involvement and what's Lloyd's all about? Lloyd's Business Brokers is now touching around 40 years old. It's one of Australia's oldest business brokers. It's an incredibly efficient way to sell a business with the way it was set up. So Rudy is actually still a broker. He brokers most of the time on his boat up in the wet Sundays. He set the business up around 40 years ago. He realized that he had some pretty expensive school fees coming down the pipe and that he had to get out there and be an entrepreneur. But one thing that Rudy did is every single person he's ever come in contact with through Lloyd's and business broking, selling businesses, buying businesses, advisors, investors. He's kept their information. Kids helped him build a proprietary CRM system, which is absolutely one of the best things I've ever used, whereby we can market a business to over 35,000 potential buyers 
and carved into segments. So it can be private equity, investors, advisors, industry experts, people that just want to see a business in that space. And where Lloyd's differentiates itself is it deals in proper businesses. And what I mean by that, and no disrespect to (laughs) small sort of fish and chip franchise businesses, they don't deal in any of those type of businesses. So no franchises, no sort of single operator, news agents. The business generally has to earn around half a million to a million dollars of actual profit to fall into the net. And that ranges right up to some businesses as high as five, 10 million. But we sort of sit in that nice, interesting space, which doesn't compete against the accounting firms or the corporate advisors like M&A partners where I used to work, which more are looking for sort of businesses around $5 million plus. And it runs an incredibly efficient campaign. So a business signs up, comes into Lloyd's. We've got some junior and some senior assistants that help drafting together information memorandums and the brokers order the financial analysis. And then the system is run basically incredibly efficiently through the IT CRM system. So the blasts all go out to various parties. And then even once a process starts, it's all done through the CRM, which the client gets access to. So it enables the client to keep on running their business as they're going through a sale process, which is very important. And you know, we'll touch on that during the, uh, the podcast. To get the juices flowing, what I wanted to touch on next was, can you tell us in a sort of a brief way, an exciting M&A deal that you've been involved in and sort of take us through a very small journey of how that worked and just so that listeners can get a feel of an exciting process that's been successful. It was one that actually back at M&A Partners and you're involved, Savan, we had a business called CardioScan. Oh, yes, we're going to go through that one. That was fun. So CardioScan was an incredibly interesting business. It had embedded itself within all the major hospitals through ECG and halter monitoring testing before an operation. And once the technology was placed inside the hospital, it was almost impossible for the hospital to de-engage CardioScan because if you're going to have an operation over the age of 40, I think now it's compulsory to have an ECG test. So if anything happens when you're under an operation, there's evidence that the patient was safe and secure and was healthy. During the process, and it was an incredibly profitable business run by an ex-nurse, Paul Kelly, who was a great client. Paul rang us up and the process was going very well. We had probably about I almost had a dozen interested parties, offshore, onshore, private families, some industry players, some private equity players. And Paul, I think through yourself, said, oh, we've got something to talk about. And, and I'm like, well, okay, that's interesting because you never know if that's <laughs> going to be, oh, hang on, I've just you know, lost half my staff or half my clients. And it was actually the opposite. He, with yourself, came into the office and said, guys, we've won a major contract. And yeah. we're actually in the exclusivity with the group. And it was going to propel the EBITDA to a different level, obviously in a positive manner. So that was quite interesting in itself because we had to devise what we we're going to do with the buyer because Paul obviously was well within his rights to pull the sales process, but he was very committed to the sale. He wanted to retire and move on and do other things in life. So we ended up approaching the buyer and informed him of this good news, but with a twist, we added in a kicker for that contract. So it was a great result for everyone involved because Paul had done a great job in getting a major client signed up on a long-term contract. And he got rewarded monetarily through a kicker option that we gave. So we basically said, look, if these numbers eventuate in this period, you'll be owed this amount of money going forward. And it was a good result for everyone involved. The buyer, I wouldn't say at the start, was particularly pleased with having to pay more, but the buyer recognised too that there was incredible value that had been brought to them during the process, which was never a part of any of the due diligence that they'd undertaken. So it was a yeah, good result all around. I remember the phone call really distinct. He said, oh, we've just won this contract. And I said, yeah, and how big is it? Who is it? And he's like, it's big. It's probably the biggest we've ever won. 
I said, make sure it's signed, don't lose it. And that's <laughs> when we called you. So that was really fun. But let's strip it back a little bit. Valuations of businesses. So I guess business owner day to day, they're running around trying to grow their business, focusing on profit, paying the school fees, whatever that might be. But then they come to a point, whether it's during that journey or thinking about exit, they want to know what their business is valued. So can you give us a bit of a rundown on that process and the methodologies that are used in valuing a business? It's a question we get asked all the time and we ask it ourselves, you know, what's a business worth? Yeah, you pick up the Fin Review and maybe not now because a lot of the tech stocks have decreased in value, but you see these crazy valuation of your Canvas and Atlassians and all of the tech businesses and they're valued on huge multiples, sometimes of revenue, sometimes of profit, and that's because those businesses have huge scalability. So they're global businesses. It's total addressable marketing, which is a bit of a fad word amongst the advisor community and amongst the investment community, is enormous. So I always say to people, look, you read about businesses being valued on 20 times revenue, that's because those businesses have got the opportunity to be billion-dollar businesses. So most of the businesses that come across our desk are good, solid industrial companies. What I mean by that, it could be a glass manufacturer out in the outer suburbs in Melbourne. It could be a wholesale retailer in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. So very much almost meat and potatoes businesses, everyday businesses that consumers' businesses use, whether it's a B2B business or a B2C. So I always say to the clients, look, your business will be valued on a multiple of your profits and a normalized profit. So let's add back anything that goes through the expenses, which a buyer wouldn't take forward. So that could be a motor vehicle cost or a personal cost or something that's going through the business. And then let's look at your profit and look at what size it is. And let's also look at what that profit turns into cash, because ultimately you're there for cash flow. You're not there just for profit because profit can be a funny number, as you know, Savannah, yeah. being an accountant. Then from that perspective, you look at the industry. So what's the growth in the industry? Is it a high growth space? Is it medium, low growth? What's the probability of that cash flow being sustainable as the years go forward? And can you grow it? So if you're in a growth phase, you get a higher multiple of profits. So it could be a six times profit number, particularly for IT businesses that have long-term secure contracts and very embedded, a bit like CardioScan. We've got a client that will be marketed next week. And I asked him, how often have you lost a client? And he looked at me like, never. Their their business gets bought and someone doesn't want to deal with them. So those businesses are very, very valuable because the cash flow is almost guaranteed. It's like an annuity income. So those businesses sell for anywhere from five to eight times. More you sort of say your traditional manufacturing business, wholesale, importer, business like that, they generally sell for between sort of three to five times multiples. So if it's a lower profit, generally that often means lower multiples because there isn't as much competition for those businesses. But when you're getting a business making up to, say, a million bucks, importing something on an exclusivity basis, it's got a very niche market and it's operating in a profitable space, you'll get four times. And then one thing we also talk to the clients about when you sell that business, often the buyer might look at staging payments or an earn out, as you know, what happened with a few deals that you and I have done together. So we also educate the seller that, hey, you might get offered just for round numbers, $10 million for your business, but it could be six or seven million up front and it could then be the balance over six, 12, 18, 24 months in staged payments. And often the buyers have to stay around because if they've been in the business for 10, 15, 20 plus years, the buyer will often say, well, look, I need that IP transferred to me. And the reason why we often say, look, they're going to hold back some of the payments and it could be on also some goals or some numbers to be achieved is that, you know, they don't want you leaving and they're left holding something that they don't know how to use or drive. So that's something that we educate the sellers on and very early to understand that they may not get all the chocolates up the front. 
What's your view on other methodologies? So you talked about profit and multiple of profit. Are there different types of methodologies, multiple on revenue and so on? Yeah, or? look, it can be a multiple of revenue, but it's more a multiple of revenue for yep. very early stage high growth companies. Most of the companies that are profitable businesses that we valued on a multiple of EBITDA. Look, there are other valuation methods like a net present value of future cash flows that we've all done at university. But yeah. <laughs> generally, you'll see the brokers and the analysts inside the big investment banks do NPV calcs for valuations because they'll come up with a spread of valuation. So it could be an NPV. It could also be looking at the net asset position of the business, but that's complicated because sometimes inside the balance sheet, you've got to strip a lot of things out and to get to a normalized position. But generally, it's a multiple of earnings. I would yep. say nine times out of 10. We get the occasional multiple of revenue or NPV cap. And sometimes a buyer will, will look at the forward cash flows and do a five-year NPV and do a weighted average cost of capital, work out different methods to value the business. But generally, most businesses that we deal with are a multiple of profit. I wanted to just touch on a couple of glossary items here and some terminology. So you'll use the term EBITDA. Can you just tell our listeners what does that mean? So EBITDA is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. And the reason that often businesses are used as a multiple of EBITDA is that that is actually the cash that's generated before items that can be non-cash or are things like tax and interest that have got deductions for tax purposes or different people have different structures for their tax purposes. So that sort of gets to a true cash position. You can Google the benefits and the disadvantage of using EBITDA. There's many different theories out there, but often business owners understand EBITDA and so do buyers. So it's a good way of valuing the business. And you mentioned things around growth phase. You talked about how long the business has been around, whether they lost customers or not. Isn't that just assessing the risk of the business? And as there are lower risk of buying that business, the multiple just grows. Is that correlation between risk and return? Is that what we're trying to identify? Yeah, correct. So if it's, say, for example, like a contracting business that has to win work every day, literally every week to survive, that's obviously got a high amount of risk because often the owner of the business has got key relationships with key clients. If that person isn't there, there's a high chance that they may go looking elsewhere for whatever service or goods that that business is offering that client. So businesses that are contracting, generally it is lower round multiples. It could be down at around the two, three, four times. And businesses that have almost annuity style income, services, businesses, or businesses that have got long-term clients that are embedded within the business's infrastructure, like CardioScan, with the fact that the cardiologists were assessing the halter or the ECG tests from the head office in Cato Street, but the technology was linked between the hospital and that. If you unplug that, then no operations occur. They attract high multiples. And often, I often say, particularly, and I've got experience that as a direct owner of companies, is that if you do have a contracting side, get the service business up. So if you're installing air conditioning, you should be doing the service. And it's a bit like the real estate agent where actually the rent roll is where all the value is. It's not in the, in the in sale. sale because yeah. the sale's like going to buy you a holiday house and get you a big quarterly uh, kicker, but actually the rent roll pays the bills. What are some of the things business owners can do to increase the value of their business? Obviously, increasing profit obviously the low-hanging fruit, but you've given us one tip. Do you have any others that business owners can do to increase their value? For business owners to increase their value, it's really around that next sort of five-year plan and having a plan and being very clear on where the business can head to and where its growth can be achieved. Because I think when you sell something, it's always nice to leave something on the table for the buyer. It could be the fact that, okay, we've established a service business on the back of our air conditioning business. But, you know, at the moment we've only got four vehicles and four staff and admin person helping us. But, hey, 
this is the size of the market, this is where we can go, this is where we can grow it to so that the buyer looks and goes, okay, well, I'm going to pay you this and then I'm going to get a return on my capital. And that's what I always say to sellers. You've got to remember the buyer is there to make money. They're not just giving you a Tesla ticket. That, that's, <laughs> I like that's that. Weird. Yeah, the, but you've got to make sure the buyer is actually set up for success. And you do read and hear a lot of sad stories where someone buys a business and next thing in three, four years' time or even less, the seller has to come back and almost save the day or go back and buy it because the person who's bought the business has just you know, run the thing into the ground. So you're ready to sell. What are the things you need to do to get your business ready for sale? One of the things to get ready for sale is to be really, really clear and have easy to understand financial information and business plan information. So for example, the times that we've worked with Alexander Spencer, you guys have been great in preparing fantastic, almost data packs. So here's the last three years P&L, here's the balance sheet, here's the cash flow. This is the amount of cash that was generated, the amount of cash that was paid out to owners and making it really clear and concise. So it's easy to understand. Often we find that businesses that come to us and their financials are a dog's breakfast and they don't really have a clear plan of what they've been doing. They've basically just been managing it from the bank balance day to day to day. It's very difficult to get a, a good story together. And what are the most common mistakes business owners make when they are trying to sell their business? One of the most common mistakes is that they take their eye off the ball and that they actually get ahead of themselves. I think they're already spending the money that they think that the business is worth. One of the keys to selling the business is to have an operations manager or themselves still keeping the numbers purring, so to speak. And I've had that happen in a deal where during the process, the owners have got too caught up in the actual sale process. And then the buyers have said, hey, can you just give us the last two months trading? And the trading's just completely capitulated because the owners haven't been actually in the business and working on the business. So they must ensure they keep the business heading in the direction that the buyer's looking and assessing the due diligence on. Yeah, a bit like Paul when he won that contract midway through, gave him the uplift. That's Whereas right. you go the other way, can go the well, other way. Well, buyers can pull their offer or they can reduce their offer. I've seen, I've seen that happen before. So everyone knows how a house is sold. Can you just go through the sale process on how it works when you're selling a business yeah. and the role of the broker with a house you haven't opened for inspection, people can see the bricks and mortar and yeah. the design and there's a real estate agent assigned. You've mentioned financials in a business. It's an insight of what the business does. They may or may not have premises. Talk us through the sale process and the broker's role. What we do at Lloyd's is we've got a very set structure. We produce an information memorandum or a sale document. We use a lot of pictures, storytelling, because basically you are telling a story about this business. So we send the client a long list of due diligence information that's required. So that's things like all their GST statements, um, if they're leasing a premises, a copy of the lease, or if they own the property, what the rent would be going forward. You want to see marketing plans. You want to see customer analysis, obviously the standard P&L balance sheet, profit and loss statements. You want to see the staff, you know, staff backgrounds, who are the key staff, who's the risk in terms of if they left, who's the succession planning, a bit of industry analysis, what industry are you in, the key competitors, where you can attract some growth. We also like to say, if we were to give you an unlimited check, where could you put that money and what could you get return on that money so that people actually start getting in their heads around where this business can head to. So ultimately, Lloyd's produces a pack of around 15 to 20 pages. We don't produce sort of long information memorandums because like anything in life, unless you get the quick attention within the first sort of five minutes of a conversation or the first few pages of reading a document, if they're not attracted to it, they'll just walk away. The key is also getting a really tight, what we call a teaser document, which goes out in the email blast so that it would say high growth IT business, Western Victoria, turnover 
10 million EBITDA, 1 million plus. And just really short, sharp, because that instantly gets people attention. So that's basically the way you run a process is running it with a really tight, concise information pack. And then once that information pack goes out and people have signed confidentiality agreements and they're into the due diligence, then you can start giving them more detailed data. So more detailed packs of information like you've produced or industry information or customer information. Now, you said Lloyd's has over 35,000 people in their database and it's segregated and segmented into industries. Is there such a website like realestate.com? So do brokers have to have their own database, own contacts and so on? And is that the real value other than the negotiating and doing the deal in providing the value to the client? And is there a website like realestate.com for selling? Well, I think there's been a couple of sites that have tried. I think there was a site called BizSale. There's some others. But look, generally, outside of selling your family home, if you're downsizing for funding retirement or downsizing for whatever reason, it's probably the biggest monetization moment in business owners' lives outside of that moment in their life. It could be actually for a lot of people, it's actually bigger than selling their family house. It's, it's, it's yeah. a life-changing amount of capital. So you're not going to put it on a website and put the shingle out and say I'm for sale. And business owners don't do this day in, day out. They need to have proper advice and have their hand held through the process. And also someone needs to take the emotion out of it because for a lot of people, not a, a call yesterday for a group that's selling, it's their baby. For a lot of people, business owners, their hobbies, their business. They actually, I've had many times which someone sold the business. It's mainly due to their partner saying, look, if you don't sell, you know, we've got X amount of years of healthy living. We want to travel. We want to see grandkids. We want to move on with our life. A lot of business owners will tell you they never want to sell. So it's a very emotional time for people. And there's a lot of ups and downs. It's like a meandering river. There's sometimes where you think, oh, I'm going to sell this business for a fortune. Then there's times when, hang on, this is a great business. Why isn't anyone interested in buying it? It's a very delicate hands-on experience. So where brokers play a, a very, very strong part is not only the database that they offer and the buyers that they offer and the research they do and the parties they approach, it's actually managing the client through the process. And you'll find in a process, you'll be talking to the client more than you'll be talking to your partner at home. They'll be on the phone sometimes four, five, six times a day about updates and where things are at and Q&As and questions, et cetera, et cetera. So you wouldn't just put it on a website and hope for the best. You really want strategic advice to get you the best result possible. We've signed a confidentiality agreement. The IM has gone out. We've got 20 interested parties. Take us through the next steps of how Lloyd's takes you through to a check at the end from the time that we've mm. got a small list of CAs signed and then the last bit. It's a funnel. So you obviously want as many decent leads in the top of the funnel to get the best result at the bottom of the funnel. So a very good process. And you know, if we go back to our cardio scan example or an IT business that was sold through Lloyd's 18 months ago, maybe 24 months ago, you know, you're getting around probably 12 to 20 strong interested parties that have signed CAs would be a great result. So of that 12 to 20 parties, you're probably then going to lose half pretty quickly for whatever reason. Don't like the industry. No, there's various reasons that come through. So say you're getting down to about sort of six to 10 parties that are, are looking deeply at the business, then it's about, and then it's a matter of creating the competitive tension. So saying to people like, for example, this IT business we're about to promote, we've sent out an early unidentified email just to say this is coming. And we've already had 15 parties. I've had people call me, say, so as soon as you get the information memorandum, we'll give you an offer in two days. I want access to that. Yeah. I like that <laughs> one. Very good business. So in that situation, you've got to manage the buyers and say, well, look, you're not the only yeah. person in town. There's a lot of interested parties. So then you ask for expressions of interest is generally the best way of running things. Let the market talk to the valuation. Obviously, we guide people to where 
we see value, but good buyers will pay fair and reasonable prices for a business. A lot of times you may not even put a number of what you think it's worth and you let the numbers and the business yeah, do the talking. Yeah, you let the growth story, the story, okay. you, let, you guide them. You don't just say, look, have a stab. You say to them, you know, these similar types of businesses trade for these types of multiples. So if you want to be in the game, you've got to be at that space. And, you know, I've had a business where people try and lowball it and you say, well, the guys aren't that old. They're better off running it because the amount you're offering them, they'll get that back in the next 18 months through their profits. So, yeah, you do get a few people out there that are tie kickers and just trying to steal an asset. So you ask for general expressions of interest by a certain date. Then it's a matter a lot of parties will want exclusivity, particularly in the businesses that we sell because we're not selling ASX-listed big businesses. You know, we're not selling businesses that are making $50, $100 million of EBITDA where you may let two or three parties into a process. Generally, if someone, a buyer is going to go and spend money on lawyers, accountants, advisors, they'll want to have exclusivity. So if there's a strong bidder and we know that that bidder is bona fide, so we know that they're capitalised, they can afford it, they actually have got a record of transacting and they're legitimate, then we would generally let one party through on an exclusivity basis and give it a very short timetable. So it might be a four to six week process. In that process, then you produce a sale of business arrangement. In that sale of business document, they're drafted by generally the seller's lawyer. So they'll be drafting, you know, what's for sale. The sale can either be via an asset sale or via a share sale. They'll be all stipulated in the document. That negotiation generally takes a couple of weeks. So the buyer will have his lawyer or her lawyer and they'll then make markups back and forth. That process is incredibly delicate because I've seen all too often lawyers and we do, and love, accountants. We do love them. Uh, not so much accountants. Okay. It's generally lawyers, slow deals and ruined deals. And I guide my clients to say sometimes there'll be representations and warranties that lawyers will argue about that the chances of them happening are so minuscule, this is a waste of money. And the, and the thing with lawyers is that we only get paid on success. Lawyers get paid by the minute or by the six-minute increment, so it becomes very expensive. So I often get clients to be really clear with their lawyer on what we're going to spend and how the lawyer's going to behave, and that's really, really critical. We had a deal two years ago that fell over because the lawyer just put some ridiculous terms and conditions forward that the buyer just walked away from. And often, you know, we actually had a case, a referral from Alexander Spencer, where I actually said to the client, if that lawyer represents you, you'll never get a deal done because they couldn't even agree to sign a mandate letter. <laughs> I do remember that, yeah. And look, I think we've been involved in that. One of the things that I love about the way you run that process is you do control the lawyers. And one of the things that I've really been, and I've learned this from you, was that you try to get the lawyers in the room, whereas lawyers don't like to be in the room. They no. want to send upmarked documents, send it to them. They send the document back. And a lot of the time, they mark up and change things that are not relevant. So if I write a well, they're sentence, not commercial. they're not commercial. And then all of a sudden, you see fees going up, time taken to get the deal done. And they're arguing about, like you said, things that are never going to happen. And then you talk to lawyers and they're like, well, that's our job. But are you doing the right thing for the client? So what you do, what I've loved about it is you actually try to get them in a room, even if it takes a whole day, and they move that pieces of paper live rather than taking forever. Mm. And then you can really negotiate through the process of what's really important to both parties. 100%. And the other thing which I've done before is that sometimes there's no agreement happening and sometimes you grab the document, go to the pub and grab a drink with the buyer and the seller and I've done markups myself. We've agreed this because ultimately you sometimes need to say to the person, if this was to happen, how would you deal with it? And most people are not going to litigate. Yeah, most people are going to call up and say, hey, this has happened. Let's sit down and work out a solution. Yeah, that's going to be the first thing. We had a situation a few years back where 
the buyer, once they got into the business, they realized that maybe what they'd bought wasn't the whole story. And there was an earn-out payment that was renegotiated over conversation between the two guys, no lawyers involved. And an email went back to the lawyers and said, there's going to be a reduction of the earn-out by $200,000. Can you just draft an amendment? Don't argue about it. Don't talk to me. This is what's happening. And that's what you have to do because you do find that sometimes the, particularly the warranties that are asked for by some lawyers, the chances, one, the chances of them happening are probably about half a percent. Then if they do happen, it won't be through litigation that it'll be resolved. It'll be through people sitting down face-to-face and working it out together. We've got the exclusivity. Lawyers hopefully are involved and have done their job and haven't charged too much. What happens there? Where does the check get paid and what's the process? It is actually in the end when you do settle a business, it is similar to a house. It's it's almost like you meet and checks are handed over with the bank. Often buyers will be using some form of debt. It may not all be equity. So there's often the banks involved as well in the deal. And then head out to uh, the flower drum and make sure Alexander Spencer are paying. <laughs> are we always never shy to pay? But I want to go back to the exclusivity and so on. So just talk through the process. So there's six, seven buyers. Someone's put their best foot forward. We like them. We say to them, you can have exclusivity to run a process to give us the check. So four to six weeks. What happens to the other guys? Are they just waiting behind the scenes for that to fall yeah, over? It, or still- how do you manage them? You still obviously engage them and keep them updated, but ultimately you do go a little bit silent for that period because it's a fairly intense period that you're working with the exclusive party. And look, sometimes you let two parties through or three parties through and you do leave it a little bit open. But given that people are going to spend actual money, unless it's an investment firm, that a private equity firm that's got that capital there, most buyers are reluctant to go forward in a process unless they've got exclusivity because they might be going and spending twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars on due diligence documents and analysis and advisors, and then they don't want to spend that and then they get gazumped or something go, you know, they don't win the auction, so to speak. And once people are spending real money, you know they're engaged. They're not going to go and spend money on advisors if they're just doing it to burn a bit of time. And they've already told you what they want to pay. So That's right. It's yeah. already agreed. It's generally just non-binding. a non-binding indicative offer, which obviously being non-binding, you know, means everyone can walk away. And sometimes that goes for both sides. You know, sometimes a seller might have a change. Something might happen in life that changes during the process and they want to retain the business. We use the word due diligence and we're talking through this process where exclusive is provided and they're going through a due diligence process. What is due diligence? How does it work? Which advisors are involved? Talk us through that process. Yeah, so with due diligence, it's going through a checklist a lot of the times. So you're making sure that the financials are legitimate. They stack up. So you generally engage with your accountancy advisor. Sometimes it may have me doing some bank reconciliations to make sure that what is presented in the information memorandum is actually there. Often site visits. Sometimes we'll be involved in talking to key staff. That's a very delicate thing because a lot of sellers don't want their staff to know. But sometimes the buyer will say, well, hang on, so-and-so. And I've got a process at the moment where the owner's son is going to potentially roll in as the general manager and the owner He's going to leave some equity for his son to be a part of the new ownership. There's been extensive discussions with the owner's son. So it's going through a lot of checks and balances too with the lawyer, making sure the company exists, the business exists, is fresh air. So it's a laundry list of items. It's everything from assessing the marketing campaign, the sales strategies, the lease that you're renting, just checking all of those off. So what we often do is we'll put all of those documents into an online data room that the client or the buyer gets access to. And then they can just go in and tick away on their due diligence over, like I said, it can be as short as two weeks. It can be as long as eight weeks. Business owners want to sell for the highest possible value. What are the most common mistakes you see in business owners where they don't address something 
And that is the thing that doesn't give him the highest value. It's really, it would be not having surety of that cash flow going forward. So they fail to get a contract over the line or they just can't demonstrate that without them, the business is going to be as successful as it's been. Often there's a lot of key man risk within businesses and that's a big factor. So succession planning is huge. And I know it's a word that gets thrown around a lot and you see it in the press, but it's a big, big part of the process. What happens if that business owner's not there? Can those cash flows, that profit, that turnover still be replicated and grow? So who are the people underneath you? Who are the potential successes to run that business? And a lot of business owners don't actually have a very good succession plan. I have to agree, 90% of our advisory work that we do with a lot of the smaller growth phase businesses is removing the business owner in the business so that the business has value so that if they're not there, it continues. And the journey always is you work really hard to build something from the ground up. You put your heart, sweat and tears into it. But eventually, if you cannot remove yourself from it and the thing continues, it's really probably not worth much. Correct. It's a business that is solely relying on the business owner. So people aren't going to pay for businesses like that. I have to say one of the deals we did together was a software company, a very fast growth software company. At the time, when we first talked about putting it on the market, it was a million dollars of EBITDA. During the presentation that we did, it went to about 1.9, but this thing was flying. It was probably going to do 2.8, 3.9. And during that process, it was just growing, growing, growing. And I remember speaking and I said, Ed, I think we should not sell. The EBITDA is growing so much. If the multiple six, we make half a million dollars more in six months time, it's going to be $3 million, rah, rah, rah. And you said, no, it is the right time to sell for that particular client. It was. When is the ideal time to sell and how does a business owner assess that in their Mm. business? Well, I think the right time to sell is when you've got everything in order. If you don't have contracts signed up or you've got staff issues or you've got manufacturing issues or you're going through a bit of a downward period in your profitability, that's obviously the time not to sell. So the business preparation is important. It can take some businesses up to six months to get prepared for sale. And Gary, who's the owner of Lloyd's, has got some people that he does use to get businesses prepared for sale. And we know other people that do that. Often that's very important and it may cost twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, but there are experts that will help do that. They'll go through the business with a fine tooth comb, make sure that there's no loose holes and everything is tight and ready to go. I always think a good time to sell is when the business is in a growth phase. That's when you're gonna get people excited. If it's just plodding along, it's making six hundred grand this year, six twenty the next, then it might go to down to five eighty. It's a solid business. It's going to be good for cash flow and you will probably get a buyer. But if you can prove that this business can go from X to Y really quickly, I sold a business in joinery and stone. Now, one of the big opportunities that the guys had never done was actually directly import stone. So the buyer was like, Laying for yeah, it. the three owners had an agreement that if one person wanted to sell, they all sold. They were selling for a personal reason and it was a great opportunity. It didn't increase the price as much, but what it did, it got the deal over the line because if you directly input the stone, you're obviously going to have to cash flow that because bringing stone from Italy is not an overnight exercise. It takes months and getting through customers and stuff, but there's margin that was on, that was being left off the table that can be brought into the business. So it helped get the deal over the line. So always having an opportunity to grow the business and de-risk it is what I always say to business owners. That's what you want to do when you're selling, you know, have something that really demonstrate that there's a great low-hanging fruit opportunity out there for the new buyer. And we can talk about this for hours. <laughs> we have in the past. However, we've run out of time. We might need to have you get you back on. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Thank you for your time. And I've learned a lot from the process knowing you during our engagement. I'm really excited about the future with Alexander and Spencer and Lloyd's. 
maybe before we go, do you want to give us a bit of a plug on what's going on in Victoria and how we're involved? Yeah, so it's quite exciting. So Victoria is obviously the second biggest market in Australia, but Gary, the owner of Lloyd's, is based in Brisbane. And as I said before, I've got a lot of hats that I wear. <laughs> yeah. And there's good lead opportunity. And, and I know that one of the things that you've thought of as you've wanted to grow Alexander Spencer is that you've got this, and it's happening across Australia, is this huge generational wealth changes as particularly the baby boomers are getting to that age of selling their business or transferring that asset to the next generation. And you get approached all the time by clients yeah. wanting to sell and you're like, well, hang on, I've got to talk to Ed or I talk to Bob or Jim or Sarah or whoever. So, yeah, as we've been discussing in the last month or two is actually forming an alliance together whereby Lloyd's can leverage its skills, which is its skills and negotiate skills of selling a business, how you sell a business, its database of buyers and sellers, and then use and partner with Alexander Spencer to also help prepare information memorandums, get the businesses ready for sale. So it's a very exciting prospect. It's something Gary and I have been talking about for a while, but we just wanted to make sure we got the right party to fit with, which, you know, we see that with Alexander Spencer. Well, I'm very excited to be part of the journey. We've done so many deals together and I cannot wait to see what's going to be in the pipeline. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ivan. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.